Oi. 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 IGA, it's shopping nights. IGA, where the price is right. Seaford North IGA, for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. Welcome back for another evening of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. We are broadcasting to you live from the Karam Karam swampland of unceded Kulin Nation land. As always, if you'd like to join the conversation this evening, text us your questions to the studio on 0493 213 831. And if you miss those numbers, just hit contact us at Radio Architecture through Instagram. Well, my conversation partner this evening is Dr. Leanne Zilka, a registered architect and academic based in Melbourne, Australia. Her architecture practice, Zilka Studio, and her academic position at RMIT University in the School of Architecture and Urban Design is a multidisciplinary one that brings together architecture, fashion, textile design, and material research that develops new ways to improve the interior and exterior of buildings. By looking at the materials not familiar to architecture, we can harness material and technology advances that can be used in buildings and cities to improve performance, function and capacity that address pressing issues around climate change. Leanne's practice looks to land new technologies, techniques and materials in novel architectural propositions working in the digital fabrication realm. Currently, Leanne is working on the relocation of fabric-based 2022 M Pavilion by Allzone, developing soft facade and interiors to help buildings deal with climate change and is involved in several exhibitions that showcase the way whole garment knitting machines can be used in the fabrication of complex architectural forms. Leanne's research and practice has been recognised nationally and internationally through awards, exhibitions, collaborations and a published book titled Floppy Logic. Leanne, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. That was a long one. <laughs> I love the title, Floppy Logic. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> we'll, we'll get stuck into that book and the projects that generated a bit later in the conversation. Oh, great. No, no doubt. But the first question I like to ask all my guests mm. is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? That's a really good question and that's something that I guess we always ask our students. Um, I think probably to be totally corny is probably the Opera House and maybe more um, – I'm from Sydney so really the kind of – coastline is probably something that really sticks in my head. That's not at all corny. No one said no, that yet. Yeah. <laughs> what, the Opera House? No, yeah, yeah. First right, time, I go. love that. Uh, so that's, yeah, that sort of proximity to the coast um, and, and how everything is orientated, you know, like the roads are not that easy to navigate because of the topo- topography. That's probably one thing. That how old would you have been when you first laid eyes on the Opera House? Um, oh, pretty young, I reckon. Well, you know, memory-wise, probably, I don't know, 12, 13. So, yeah. Is that a building that made you want to be an architect? I reckon, 
Yeah, I mean that's sort of I always think about like why do you want why did I want to do architect? I I had my uncle was an architect, um, and I thought he was really cool because he had like these R M Williams boots that were a bit kind of worn in, and he just looked like he was working hard and having fun and had really cool, you know, coloured pencils. So that's that was I was introduced and you know you see the models and it's all very sexy. Um, and then you sort of see a building like the Opera House and it's really easy to appreciate. It doesn't need a lot of um, intellectual knowledge. Absolute masterpiece even yeah. before its renovation. It yeah, exactly. So um, and then you can very easily access that sort of information and it's, you know, then you see like the orange peel and how, you know, the orange was cut into these. Um, a segmented model. Exactly. So it's a really good way to kind of get people to be interested in architecture, I think, that building. We're so lucky to have it. There's so many stories around the Opera House, right, and how when they ran the competition, all the other oh, yeah. schemes that could have been and oh. how they fired and halfway through. Yeah, yeah. Scary stories of, of, procurement, of procurement in Australia. So what got you interested in textile architecture? Now that you mentioned these segments, yeah. I'm thinking to images of your work, there's often slices and peels and pieces like that. Yeah. Um, so I think when I was overseas, I did a master's in the States and at that time everybody was talking about materials. It was the time of Herzog and de Muron and you had Nadir Tarani and Monica Ponce de Leon. These were people who were obsessed with materials um, and, you know, designing from a material outwards. And we also had this fantastic opportunity to um, talk with one of the textile designers from Isamiyaki who was interested in perhaps doing some furniture and that was mind-blowing because I was looking at APOC, which is, you know, called a piece of cloth and it's a whole garment um, knitting technology that um, allows you to... Um, knit an entire um, garment that you can then customise. So you could cut the sleeves off, you could cut the waist off, you could cut the, you know, gloves off and it wouldn't fray because of the way that they designed it. Wow. So it was really kind of a back-end way of thinking about, you know, um, mass customization, for example. So it was always coming from a kind of scale, smaller scale, garment scale Thing. I think I was probably I should have been a fashion designer, but I was very interested in, you know, then, you know, discovering Comme de Garçon and the way that they have space between the body and the garment and the techniques of how they actually make the garments. So, you know, Dries van Noten and Martin Magella. So all these kind of um, people sort of opened my eyes up. And looking back, I mean, I suppose the Opera House is really it's a fantastic idea but it is really embedded in how you make a building. So um, I think that's that was really where all of that comes from and so then it's been this impossible struggle to sort of tap into the techniques and the materiality that, you know, we love so much with fashion and then work out a way to scale it up which is not, you know, sort of um, meaningless in a way like... It retains a, a form or a, a shape yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, so it is about the actual form making and then how you actually articulate that or how you develop that as a material system. 
very much going from that small detail and zooming back out, whereas other practitioners may look at from the macro, from the really large kind That's of right. huge whole world universe, even out of space sometimes, and zoom back into the detail. That's right. And so that's always been a struggle and it's always been, I guess, my um, where I sort of always start design, which is it is actually almost impossible and it has taken a long time and I guess that's where the research has been spinning over to try and deal with scale. And then when you think about scale, everything is a scale problem. Like I was l- watching the Bill Gates in the mind of Bill Gates and, you know, he he's got these massive labs where he's just pouring money into kind of ideas and the scale is so small. The ideas are amazing but the scale is so small and I, I really relate. Oh, absolutely. To that. When you talk to jewellers or jewellery yeah, designers, yeah. the exact same thing and they're speaking about, oh, well, to take that down five sizes, that'll be 0.7 of a millimetre. Right. And for us architects, that almost becomes incomprehensible. Totally. Like I get it, intellectually understand that number is small and they exist at small scales, yeah. but that, that's not real for us in the physical world or no. not, not in our physical world. No, but then if you scale up from that tiny scale, because it's so rich, you actually eventually have something that's kind of equally as rich. Whereas if you're coming from a massive scale down, it sort of doesn't have – it's hard to get that level of articulation and there are – I suppose that's why I heard Sogan you know, some of these Swiss architects or even the Japanese who have this amazing relationship with construction. That's that's sort of um, where I'm coming from, I guess. Yes. And craft, so much so much craft and skill also yeah, in their industry. Yeah. But before we move into that craft, skill and materiality, I do want to touch on America and it was Boston that you studied in, is yes, that right? that's right. What was that like? What was architectural education in America like at the time? Um, <clears throat> so in America um, we were lucky that it, you work and study in the building. You have, you're assigned a desk. You have a neighbour who's called a butt mate. I had actually Vicky Lamb oh, in really? one of our classes. Yeah. In fact, to say shout out to Vicky, like she has had such a knowledge of fashion, I probably picked up a lot from her. Um, and so you're in this, it's not a very big school and you're together and you're there 24-7. It's open 24-7. There's computer labs. There's a big, very, very famous library. There was still is, and um, and then your tutor will come in and talk to you at your desk. You'll have assigned time to meet, but they're there all the time and a lot of um, international architects were coming and teaching, so they'd fly in, spend a couple of weeks quite intensively. You'd go out, it was extremely social, um, and then they'd fly back and then you'd do some work preparing for the next visit. That so sounds really fun. It was very luxurious, yeah. It was pretty great. You know, and because no one in the States is great in that way, if you can, you know, it's not cheap and it's quite an elite thing to do. Um, but if you, everyone lives away from home, I feel like students miss that here. I mean, lots of students do, do live away from home, but there it's part of the culture and people go to class because there's nothing else to do. It's, you know, um, they're not also, they don't have to work as hard. They're taking massive loans and, so the culture of the schools are really quite exceptional. And it's quite a different experience to really what life is like in Australia. We had a student special broadcast last year. We had right. three students on the show to talk about their, their lives at a university, yeah. one from RMIT and two from Melbourne. It's very common right, for us here to be working part-time yeah. and to be um, 
take, taking the masters part-time or yeah m- many then move ho- out of home eventually then will, will they do but they're sort of in this more in apprenticeship kind of model yeah as students of architecture yeah which I have to say because I worked in the states before I studied and you know coming being me who's you know always self-doubting that's just the way I think that's a kind of architect's modus operandi and thinking, oh, you know, I'm from Australia, these are like these big Americans, they're going to be so much better. But if Australians, and I hear this all the time, they're really efficient. They're really efficient. So, you know, we'd be there all day long and, you know, I was working at that time, I was a very junior and my the guy I was working with, he'd rock up at 11, you know, fart around for quite a bit of time and then start working like one o'clock right and then you know work into the night so it was very wasteful I felt I can't imagine anything worse no it was so bad so (laughs) I mean it was a great office but yeah that that bit of it was and that just you know and you speak to Australians now it's the same story like we just get shit done yeah yeah we really do and I totally sense that in my exchange experience oh right that's right going going over to Europe yeah we're just very go, go, go. We're very lucky. Yeah. To, to Resourceful. You know, we don't have all the bells and whistles that's special at RMIT. Um, I mean, there are a lot of bar, uh, bells and whistles, but, you know, we we hack things together and, you know, there's the space for that to, to happen. Get it done. And that's yeah. really essential in the in the future of practice because you can't afford to be so luxurious. No, exactly. You actually have to invoice your clients. and Yeah, yeah. Inverse, invoice for sensible time and, and the way you, you spend and the way you do that. Yeah. So then you came back to Australia. Yeah. After after graduating. Yeah. Or? Yeah. So after yeah, after, I worked there for about um, a year and then I did a year and a half post professional, and then um, my husband's from Melbourne, so we moved back to Melbourne, and then I worked for a tiny bit at Bait Smart, um, which is great. And then um, I think I was always tutoring and then um, I, yeah, I took a position at RMIT and then, you know, I had kids and so the practice is sort of slowly built up in parallel and you, all those things. you did your PhD at <laughs> RMIT. That's right. And that's really where the, the body of work and floppy logic comes from. Correct. Tell me about the name floppy. So, I mean, I was thinking um, soft, like it's very hard to deal because I'm, on a, I'm exploring things that have no structure and the good thing about exploring something like that is that you have to, it's very inventive because you've got to think of a way of supporting it without turning it into, you know, a stretched, a, a stretched skin or just a skin. Yep. So but if you... Think about that. What what can you call it? Fabric, soft. They all have really strong visual connotations. So, and some would say floppy does too. But floppy is not architectural, and it's not fashion, and it's somewhere in between. So, I was able to kind of um, customize the the research much more easily than having you know preconceived people coming to listen to whatever I'm saying and have preconceived ideas around. Mm. Um, you know, what soft means and 
<clears throat> if you Google soft architecture, there's like thousands of examples there. There's a very important trick. I think one of the uh, sort of big lessons of marketing is is call something that means nothing because yeah. then there's no right. preconceived associations. But go. I think you've really made floppy your word and very yeah. very much your your uh, staple like home a name and brand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very very much a, a staple. When I hear floppy, I think floppy logic. And yeah, right, great. Yeah, it's, it's working. It is working. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the the floppy thought worked. And I, I think one of the first projects that um, Conveyed floppy to me was pleat pod, yes. sort of acoustically treated meeting orb, yes. meeting space. Yep. It also kind of feels like a this purple, pink, fuchsia, yep. orange harmonica <laughs> that opens and closes <laughs> around. Does it pack up? Um, the one that pro- that that's sort of a pro- the one that you were talking about, which is in the design hub of um, at RMIT. That no, so that was a kind of a long story. I mean, the PhD really kind of came about through that project and looking at pleat was really fa- fun because pleat is a fashion term. It's actually originally from uh, – it's an upholstery term that is to turn a straight bit of fabric around a corner mm. and that's where that comes from. So it's not like a fold which is very, you know, kind of vertical that – might concertina this actually expresses form so pleat is much more about form um and so that was just like a bit of a wow um term for me because um how do you how do you get material technique and form all happening at the same time and pleat does that so that was a great way to develop this um enclosure that then you know you can pull the pleats closer together that creates more structure actually you pull them apart there's less structure so the combination of the you know pulling together and pulling apart it's a sort of um a balanced uh enclosure so if you take some of it away it'll fall uh, I was just going to ask yeah. that. Like, yeah, if you, it's if all you completely shape, reliant on each other. Each piece is reliant on the next, so they're not um, standing independently. Self-supporting. Is there yeah. a word for that? Self-supporting. Good. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thinking more in the opus of the, like a geodesic dome almost. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what material was it made of exactly? So that one was um, an MDF board with a fabric, cl- um, actually a foam and felt interior for acoustic absorption and then on the outside was just a fabric. Okay. Yeah, that was fixed. Fabulous. Yeah. And did you do any sort of acoustic testing or post-occupancy kind of testing or data gathering in that space? You know, there's people who've done PhDs and they've used that pod as a way to um, measure sound and what it does is look I mean any you know um, acoustic engineer will tell you like you've got to have no air coming through so it's got to be airtight this is not airtight because we had sprinklers and we couldn't hit the ceiling so we had to lower it so it was never going to be um, acoustically oh you can see through the top of it yeah, oh yeah. So it's like four hundred mil from the okay. t- from the um, slab. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that's the main thing. But when you're in there, it doesn't. You can have conversations that you have to listen pretty carefully to hear. So it does have some privacy, but yeah, unfortunately, um, just the way that that 
the building is, we couldn't actually completely seal it. But we, I don't think that was the real intent of the project anyway. Yes. Yeah. It was certainly about seeing what architecture you could get out of something that was floppy. Yeah, exactly. So structure, form and skin all wrapped up in the kind of one dimension, I suppose, of material. And did that project come before or after the anamorphic projections at RMIT with Paul Morgan, those uh, sort of colourful wayfinding? Oh, no, that came before. That came before. Yeah, and then actually after that, um, after Pleatpod, Paul and I did a, a frozen curtain. So that was, again, more experimentation with a sort of raw material without trying to use too much support. So that's massive pleated, you know, I think that, um, buildings like five meter high ceilings. And it's multicolored as well, yeah. isn't it? Sort of being peeled apart. That's right. So it's sort of simulating a movable curtain, but actually it's kind of fixed in place. But um, there's a lot of like you know little tricks of how because the pleats there's so such a tall space, the pleats will collapse on themselves. So we've got these kind of moments where the fabric kind of bends out and creates space so that you can articulate each each pleat. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was really fun. And an optical illusion in a way as well. Yeah. That's subverting your expectation of what you think that material is. Yeah, exactly. That's so, that for me is often one of the most surprising or enjoyable things in architecture where um, you're surprised how do they do that or yeah. how does that seem so elegant even though it appears impossible. Yeah. I mean I think also like it teaches you to maybe not have so much control like – I mean, architects deal with exteriors, which you actually have to control. But when you're on an interior, you know, if the, the material's not completely frozen in place, it's completely fine. Yes. You know, you actually understand materiality when it allows itself to do what it's going to do without too much control. So I think I enjoy that that side of things as well. And maybe that's coming from garments where, you know, there's a lot of movement and, you know, often when you try something on, you've got to move around and see how the the material's falling or how it feels. So it's a much more dynamic way of understanding material. Mm-hmm. That process of discovery. Yeah. Uh, just a side question. Do you sew? Um, I do. I do. I'm not I'm not what you think. I mean, I can. I like mucking around but I'm not, yeah, no, I'm not a prolific. I know, I know what you're thinking. Why? Like, I've got this, you think like, I'm going to ask if you make your own clothes? And, yeah, no, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate no. from afar, but I can put a button on a shirt. <laughs> I didn't make assumptions about a sewing room, no, but I did wonder if you maybe started off sewing and yeah. if that uh, hobby t- turned into a, no, a broader interest. I don't so think so. That's a unique path in a yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very unique way to come to it. Yeah, I think though if I'd known too much, I probably would have not. You know, when you know too much, you're less creative sometimes. You get stuck in the rigidity. Yeah. And less permission to sort of break all those rules. That's right. So this was a complete naivety around what a pleat actually means and how it scales up. So I want to ask about prototyping. Like what is your process like and are you finding similarities throughout the projects through those prototyping stages or each one's completely different? No, I think um, because I'm – struggling always with this scale issue so falling in love with something that's a small garment scale and then working out how it can actually grow it's it relies heavily on prototyping so it's iterative and it scales up slowly slowly and there's a moment where it just can't scale anymore and it collapses so then you've got to then think about other systems or other ways of giving it um, support so that it can actually be spatial you know it can be an architectural scale um, and then just really accepting that some things just can't. 
some things are mm. just going to be, you know, um, room scale and not building scale. So you've got to know when to sort of stop pushing stop it. Stop pushing it. Yeah, absolutely. Is your process of prototyping quite creative and like craft driven and more artistic or is it quite scientific and you're like in a lab and you're collaborating with material experts like how does that look can you bring us into that world a little bit so I mean when I first started strangely I was uh, really into I mean I still am very interested in material qualities and you know technical materials and I was really into um, glow in the dark um, pigments, which were at that time Professor Mannering at RMIT Material Science had kind of shrunk the glow, the glow nano um, particle to such a small size that it could be embedded in fibre. So then you could kind of let, I mean, now this fabric's fibre's kind of, you know, you can buy it online. But he also increased the length of time at the glow. So the stuff that you buy with toys and things like that, they you know, a couple of hours or even less and they're, they're gone. This had sort of quite a few hours, you know, six, seven hours it could glow. Wow. Yeah, so I was trying to then think about that as a passive urban lighting idea mm. um, and it was very scientific. I mean, my PhD actually started with him as a second supervisor and, you know, I was going through ethics and you know, maybe trying to understand perception because the glow is can't compete with normal light. As soon as there's other light in the room, it, you can't read it. So trying to – and there's no lux levels associated with glow. So it was really, yeah, kind of a hard sell in the beginning of the PhD. Um, so it started very technical and it is like it, – I mean, the, the things are quite beautiful when you start making things out of paper and you see them – grow but they're really coming from a structural material form kind of um, solution. So I guess I'm inspired by um, art and sculpture but I think the the process is much more scientific than that. Mm, absolutely. And you collaborated on the M Pavilion, particularly All Zones. M Pavilion is currently being yeah. relocated. You've been the project architect on a number of M Pavilions. Yeah. And I remember attending a panel conversation about about that one in particular and some of the consultants and subconsultants that were on that oh, project right, team yeah. with there and you had a leading material science expert yep. on the panel. And what was that process like? So that was really a gift because all zone, um, well, Russia Porn Shuchi, who um, is probably one of the most generous people I've ever met, um, has got a very material practice. She does have sewing machines in, in her office. I mean, they do do a lot of fabric-based um, temporary pavilions, a lot of temporary things. She does do really beautiful um, permanent, but her fabric-based stuff is quite temporary. So she was selected um, to be the 2022 M Pavilion designer and that was a really collaborative process because, you know, um, because her things were not permanent, the M pavilions are designed as permanent, even though they're temporary in terms of regulations and um, building permits. They have to actually, you know, not burn people and they have to allow egress. And so they, while they're um, technically temporary, they still have to comply with the building code. And I think a lot of her work up to that point um, was more festival-based or biennale-based, um, so not to last for that long. Um, so this was a real opportunity for us to um, explore 
materials that had certification, so they're legitimate materials, and maybe experiment with some new materials um, and to develop a kind of, you know, fabric-based um, pavilion. So it's, you know, it's got three roofs. It's um, her waffle structure that that's really quite unique um, and it was also about, you know, it had to be waterproof so a lot of her other pavilions are not watertight so that's when we started to look at splitting the function so there's a top layer, um, the middle layer is the watertight layer and that's a, a technology called STFE, it's the first time it was ever used and it's like a transparent membrane which is not normal. Normally yeah, it's amazing. Cloth. Yeah. It's amazing to look up and learn that it was waterproof. Yeah, so... Um, and tensile structures are really designed for shade, so it's unusual to have a translucent or transparent um, shade cloth material. Um, so that did all the work. That was, you know, and you can see it, um, you know, uh, going up and it look, you know, it's got the sort of tent um, kind of form with two peaks um, and that is draining into some gutters. And then on top of that, uh, there's a uh, woven fishing net. So that was custom made actually in Thailand. Um, and they make, their machines are absolutely enormous because they um, trawl like very large areas of the sea for fish. Uh, and they have all different types of netting depending on what type of fish they're, they're catching. So they custom made a kind of orange and yellow combination. Um, and then that was on top, so you actually don't see um, – you do see it at night, but you don't really see the um, kind of waterproof membrane. Um, and that's – you know, that's all had to be how do you join it, it's how do you cut it. It's pretty um, – it's a really rough material. It Like, you know, the people that were sewing it, you know, they, they had to wear gloves because it'd take off a layer of your fingers. Wow. Yeah, pretty – serious stuff that, and that's the fishing net that's the fishing net well, what was the function of the fishing net so it's sitting above the water yeah so it's that's basically articulating the form okay yeah because the sdfe has a kind of standard um sort of tent form this was giving you the kind of illusion okay, of, yeah, of, yeah. of a roof in a way it's giving us those roof curves yeah and the pleats were giving us the volume underneath that's right and so the ceiling the, is a kind of cloud like the waffles yeah that's right the waffles, the waffles. That's right. You got pleats in my head now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the waffles were. It was amazing that pavilion. Yeah, well, the, I think a lot of people really enjoyed that one. Absolutely, yeah. one of my joyful, favorites. very joyful, yes. very generous. I mean, it really speaks to um, that practice as well. Very fun. Yeah, and with a stage that was also accessible. -ish, yes, if you can count the grass. Yep. As as a point of access, like there was there was so much there, and the um, little bar kiosk. That yeah. was lockable for once. Yeah. And that could be was painted different colours. Yeah, that was really Everything fun. Was, that was very fun. It was yeah. like every few few weeks or month it was a different colour. That color. was actually bloody hard, that um oval kiosk in the end, because it was quite hard to get something that where we didn't have to panelize the facade. Mm. So I mean the skin. Yeah. So that was uh, its own challenge, even though it was quietly sitting there, that was actually quite a rough What was it made out of? Um, well, we ended up using like a, um, a safete material. Okay. Yeah, so that really not impact resistant at all. Like so a fibre like cement was, or something. Yeah. Yep. So um, and um, yeah, that could, that could take a bit of form. 
Oh, okay. Like a, a hardy flex, not a fibre cement, like hardy yeah. flex, yep. Awesome. Mm. How, how did you come or get this amazing opportunity to be involved with M Pavilion across multiple pavilions now as well? So, I mean, that was the second one. I've only done two. Um, I guess the first one was um, in 2018 with um, a studio, Kame Pinos. And Kame had taught me overseas and we'd kept in touch. Um, she's a really fantastic person. Um, and when she received the commission, she just needed um, an architectural record. So she recommended me and M Pavilion was happy with that. So um, I actually came in more towards the end of that project because um, there were a lot of compliance issues that I think um, Kame was not jumping on board with so it was a bit of a problem uh, and I think she just needed somebody that she could trust to really say you know we kind of do need a handrail and we need these things um, so yeah and that's you know in terms of geometry that's really also something that I find really amazing so and her compositions are unbelievable I mean she's just fantastic so that's where it started and mm. then I think I always kept in touch with M Pavilion and then when Sam Ritston, who was the CEO at the time, said they've got All Zone coming and I'd seen her work at the Biennale, I'd like totally jumped at it and I knew that she was – she's so collaborative um, and the team really worked so well together and there were ideas flying around. There was, you know, soccer nets. <laughs> I was looking at soccer nets and all kinds of different things. That's really amazing to get this insider perspective because all of us sort of experience just experience the pavilion yeah. itself when it opens. We're like, oh, there it is. That's yeah. all we've got for the year. Yeah. Um, and I think few few listeners realise that there, there's a process of working with a local team. Yeah. To get make it real, to get it right. built, to sign it off, to get all the approvals in place. It's not yeah. just the um, godlike creative vision of a distant architect. No. That's right. It is a whole collaborative process. Yeah, especially when there's material kind of experimentation because that's, you know, like just to talk about the fire codes, um, we're lucky, you know, the pavilion was open on all sides because, you know, the fishing net is not a kind of, um, it's not a, you know, material that's got all the classifications on it. Mm. But um, because it's totally open and, um, you know, it's a kind of nylon that, that will drip, not, in you know, flame. So, you know, all of this is performance solutions, so not something that, you know, is um, ticking all the boxes necessarily. So, and, you know, that, that opportunity, like those pavilions really allow for that and kind of push push the profession forward. That's the whole point of a pavilion, right, to, yeah. to test ideas with bravery and really the idea behind the M Pavilion is to import ideas and bring it to Australia, bring it here for our discussion and That's right. our shared learning. Yeah. Does it make you nervous when they get pull apart, pulled apart and relocated? Um, well, the 2018 Carmes one is only now being relocated um, and that's at the Mon Monash Peninsula campus. So that was sort of sitting out in the field really in horrific disrepair. So that was really heartbreaking to see but now... Um, it's really going to transform that campus um, and Monash have been incredibly generous in allowing um, 
the pavilion to not just sit there but actually be integrated into the main square of the campus. Oh, it's, fabulous. Yeah, so it's... And they have Sean... Is Sean Gotsall's own pavilion in Melbourne or Monash? Um, Sean's is actually at the Immigration Museum, I yeah. think. Unless it's moved, yeah. But that, that one's not probably... Yeah, that's... There's been a few little... A uh, few changes that I'm sure Sean's not that entirely happy about, but... Changes and moments. I mean, that's the other thing, like... Yeah. Trying to get it moved in and keeping it as it should be and then have maintaining a relationship with the architect is something that I think um, is really important for it to be a success. And um, I'm, I think both of these, the 2018 and this one, yeah, are going to be really fantastic for those where they're relocating. Yeah, and, fi- and finding their new home. And I guess some designs also lend themselves a bit better to uh, coping with the conditions in Australia yeah. and dealing with that relocation. Yeah, I mean, look, it's interesting. Architecture is not necessarily relocatable, so it's kind of, you know, it's quite interesting just even having that discussion, like it's designed for the park and then it's moved to a campus. What does that mean? Is that really good? Um, and these these things, because they're so experimental, actually seem to work in other locations, some better than others. In many ways, they're allowed to look like they just landed from outer space. Yeah. We don't ask the same things of a pavilion as we do as a permanent building. We sort of give Although it permission. once these do become permanent, they're actually completely massaged into the landscape. Less so with, I mean, even with the um, All Zone, which is going to RMIT Brunswick Campus, which is a fashion textile school, um, you know, there's been a lot of thought around where it's located in terms of the trees and its ground plane and Hassel's has, you know, worked through a lot of that. Um, you know, the sorry, the landscape um, from Hassel's. And um, I think the I personally think the most successful one will be the Monash because it's been used as a way to integrate a whole lot of um, the centre of the campus. So the landscape extends into the building and that's been very... I think that's going to be a huge success. It's amazing and important to, I think, also offer these in moments of inspiration, architectural inspiration to students mm. who maybe half the campus is rigid and traditional and dusty, stuffy 1970s buildings and to offer that architectural promise of you could do something crazy like this one day too. Like yeah. it, it can be. Yeah. I find that interesting moving it to the Brunswick campus, the textile school. Yeah. To challenge fashion designers who are considering just garments for wear on humans and bodies and maybe dogs mm. to uh, – what about their grapple with scale? Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that would be very very much interesting. Uh, where do you see the next frontier of architectural innovation going? Um, well, that's um, – I mean – Climate change is really the big challenge for everybody and everything everybody does really needs to be thinking about that. Um, And I think, you know, everybody seems to be looking at retrofit or reuse, um, trying to not use more materials, even though they may be really sustainable, but actually trying to think about the spaces that we currently have and what we can do with them. So, you know, CBD uh, is basically built there might be a few more buildings um, to come along, but generally speaking, it's kind of done. 
but there's a lot of obsolescence, there's a lot of empty buildings. How can we really use those? So I guess um, that's probably where I'm interested in um, these lightweight solutions to, um, you know, use as smart facades that might harvest water, might um, support plant life, uh, might have sensors that can understand what's going on in the environment around them. And you're imagining that all these climate solutions and climate technology is actually going to be driven by essentially floppy architecture. Well, that's, yeah, I think it's got a real... By material science. Yeah, I think it's got a real, um, yeah, um, kind of opportunity there because it's lightweight. You can, you know, you're not relying too heavily on additional structure. Also, when you look at technical textiles, it's way more advanced than architectural materials. Yes. They're really smart. Um, Dyneema yarns or carbon fibre, you know, ten times or seven times stronger than steel but very light. Yes. Um, There's also, uh, you know, lots of um, technologies that can be embedded in fabrics that, you know, sensors and, uh, you know, solar beads. Uh, So I think... There's a lot that you, as soon as you start to get into that territory, you can then tap into these um, other materials that we have been deprived of in architecture. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but certainly not in rock climbing, for example. You mentioned Denima, a very, yeah. very familiar. Oh, I, right. I am a rock climber. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, very familiar with the amazing strength of Denima. And sometimes you ch- check what the label says, six kilonewtons, nine kilonewtons, 12 kilonewtons of yeah. force, and you think, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, it's tiny the M Pavilion has... Dyneema yarns in there to deal with all the wind loads and actually that's how the connections between the waffle and the steelwork is is um, tethered. Incredible. Mm. Is um, impact from animals or wildlife a consideration at all? So that's interesting because when Russia Porn came to give a talk, somebody in the audience says, what about birds? Like isn't this, have you had this, you know, tested or... I can't remember what the question was, quite sort of shocking. Um, we did consider it and I think uh, it was discounted just because I think there's no way to actually get in to the underlayer unless you've got a really smart bird who's going to fly up through the waffle and then somehow navigate around like it was just sort of – and to date there's been no – No birds. No birds. Yeah. I think birds fly if they're seeing – something I mean I'm not a bird expert but if you if you've got something in the way of their destination they will fly into it but they're they're unlikely to dive into something that they can't see the other side yes yeah for sure it's usually when they also get confused in reflections yeah and so you can get bird safe glass with a uv interlayer right because birds can see uv but humans can't oh right and so you can put a pattern on your bird safe skyscraper glass right so the birds don't hit it yeah oh there you go there's a added bird safe glass option yeah (laughs) um I'm, I'm hearing this more and more, really, that materials are going to be the future. And um, in a conversation with last year's guest, Tita Shing, he mentioned how out of the Hong Kong Biennale, that was a real big idea coming forward and that was his hypothesis for the future. So definitely threads, pardon the pun, are, are emerging yeah. that uh, materials are, are that future direction for us. Mm. What about um, – I'm, I'm a clean air nerd, I – 
I love I love clean air, I love fresh air. What about buildings that breathe? And is, is there an opportunity yeah. for textile architecture to filter the air or clean the air for us? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there was a um, PS1, um, which is the MoMA PS1 uh, sort of uh, temporary pavilion, which had it was called Windy, and that had fabric that um, absorbed acid chemicals in the air and then you know when there's rain that would wash off and you sort of collect that and you know discard it thoughtfully so yeah there are fabrics that actually can clean and um, a lot of you know hospitals they have um, materials that are um, sort of antibacterial so um, that's yeah that's definitely yeah quite a high-tech possibility for sure we certainly specify a lot of antibacterial, antimicrobial sort of treated textiles yeah. uh, if we're ever doing any sort of vinyls or upholstery mm-hmm. in major health architecture. But I always thought it was like a surface treatment. I always thought it was a, um, a protection layer. Yeah. Is, so, so what I'm hearing is that this is like an integral function of the material that's going to be available to us. Well, so that is already available. So there's fabrics that actually do cleanse. Um, yeah, how? I mean, you've still got to de- depose of the water that is in, um, polluted after it, it, you know, the, it's it's hosed off or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I can't. I, yeah, I mean, air quality. That's definitely one thing that 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 can be totally looked at for sure. Do you see? an opportunity to recycle through floppy architecture or recycle um, textile waste. I've learned that fashion and clothing textile oh, yeah. is a massive contributor to landfill. Yeah. Is, is that possible or it's not quite uh, structurally or technically functional enough? So I think that has a lot to do and architecture is also pretty bad. Mm. Um, mm. It has a lot to do with the manufacturing process. So when you've got composites, that's really bad. So if you've got a you know, if you've got a sweater that's polyester, nylon, cotton, that's a disaster. That's really hard to recycle. Uh, if you've got pure wool or pure nylon or pure, you know, one fibre, then it's it's not as bad. So, for example, I mean, that's partly why we look at whole garment knitting because there's no waste. Mm. The um, garment goes into the machine as a programmed shape and comes out as a pro. Uh, as that nothing else. It's incredible. It's also a continuous fibre. So as soon as you uh, pick it apart, it'll unravel and form a, another, you know, um, bit of fibre that can be used somewhere else. So that sort of way of thinking about things I think is probably better than, um, you know, using materials that uh, you still – you might be able to grow them fast but they're still – producing carbon on their and their end cycle. So I think fashion looking at whole garment, you know, one material um, and similarly with architecture like composite panels are a disaster, glass, aluminium, steel, they're much more recycled, they're easier to recycle. Because you just take that one module and... Melt it down. Exactly. Yeah. Or strip it back and re Yeah, like it. even paper cups, as soon as they're coated with a bit of um, plastic, that's it, you can't recycle them. So... Keeping yep. it mono material, and us as consumers are sometimes quite sold up the river, thinking that this is oh this next greatest solution or oh, it's yeah. so good. But 
sometimes being back in its single form and its more purer form for want of a better word is is a more sustainable application. Yeah, and I think you're seeing aside from, you know, we went through this period of, you know, all the great, the new materials or let's use glue lamb timber and, um, you know, all the sustainable material push and now I feel like it's people are going towards less, mm. less clothing, you know, less um, building space, less, you know, less buildings, retrofitting, reuse. That's the kind of the push, I think. Yeah, reusing that existing structure. Yeah, which is really hard in itself because, yeah, I mean it's as soon as like you change of use, for example, I was just talking to Nigel from ACOM, as soon as you do change of use you suddenly got seismic requirements. So not so easy, becomes very expensive. So there's got to be ways and I think that's also – moving away from this kind of silo building, like they've got to work as a community because if they have seismic information, it would be the same across Melbourne if that was a readily available resource. You know, building owners might be more interested in um, pursuing it because they don't have to pay for the whole analysis. Is that in the sense of uh, whole building retrofits, like taking office towers? Correct. Yeah. To turn them to residential. So that's one of the biggest hurdles. It's the seismic constraints. Well, it's why, yeah, because as soon as you change of use, you're building a new building. Yep. It's not acknowledging the existing. So you've got to comply with current. Wow. So there's somebody, something's got to give. Yes. We need some smart engineering solutions and some brave building surveyors around that. Yeah, well, government's got to step in. Step in. And back it. Or pay for things like seismic analysis or, you know, just the kind of that sort of information should be kind of readily available for everybody to access. Sounds like an opportunity for the City of Melbourne to back a tangible sustainability initiative. Yeah, absolutely. As well, because they are are quite motivated, but that would really very much liberate, as you say, would motivate building owners to to move forward with those retrofits because it's shocking how many towers are empty now. Yeah, but even like a lot of the heritage buildings, um, you know, they're – rely on the rent and the commercial level which is the ground floor and then nothing's rented up top because it's too expensive you know it'd be great if there was something you know just hold the rates or have a fast track for you know existing buildings for planning purposes you know just to make it a little bit easier for it to be done hmm it's exciting, exciting yeah, in the it's future. Totally, yeah. And these these retrofit projects that are going to be almost surgical and how we'll, we will have to deal with them as a profession yeah. are important because you can't do that without an architect. No. You're really not going to be able to um, get, get rid of us and get rid of the consultant team. Yeah. So that reassures me and gives me hope that the profession will come back to an opportunity to be contributing, to be adding value and to do really important work that we can't be replaced through. That's right, yeah. I mean, it is sort of sad that we're so uninvolved, you know, there's such a tiny percentage of work done that um, involves an architect. So, um, yeah, it'd be great to, to change it and maybe that's, you know, where we can add value. I don't see any other way, really. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't see how... They could possibly get something livable. I mean, when you have these enormous open office floor plans, like maybe they'll fill that with dog boxes, but 
even these like regulatory hurdles mm. seem like they can't you can't surpass that without a good team. No, absolutely. On, on the case and some of the other things like facade treatment um, or, or creating a, a livable facade again, you know, carving out balconies, operable windows at, yeah. a, at low enough levels. Yeah, absolutely. Exciting, exciting moment for the mm. future. Then, in that in that sense, I I wonder then this in search for an inherent sustainability mm. in, in materials. Where where does your gut instinct sit with that? Um, so I think um, again, I suppose. You know, when you when you think about, I mean, I always say like light is right. I think, I think people have to. There has to be this kind of equilibrium where people are able to put a jumper on. I mean, it's sort of been told over and over again. But you know, instead of putting the air conditioning on or the heating on, you know that you dress. So there has to be a little bit of uh, human discomfort, or just not even discomfort, just not over comfort. Collaboration almost with your environment. Well, yeah, absolutely. So that you can, you know, have something that's that's going to work. That you know, now buildings need to work. They can't just sit there and absorb. They've got to actually, you know, tap into their own um, energy. They've got to make their own energy. They've got to deal. They should be able. They should be dealing with their own waste, <clears throat> and they should be harvesting and sharing it. So um, I think that's. You know, it'd be great to instead of each building just being considered as a lone, you know, ranger in the city, that it's collaborating with the buildings around it. I'm really curious about longevity as mm-hmm. well, where many will say that that's a very important component in sustainability. How does that longevity apply to textile architecture and these material systems? Um, so, yeah, well, technical textiles, I mean, sales. You don't get a material that's being beaten up more than a sail out in the salty sea. Mm. Um, and the way that they're made, they're a structural um, kind of element. There's um, tension points. They have more fibres at the edges and then it thins out in the centre and they're made in, you know, quite amazing factories. So um, and that there's a whole range of different fibre strengths in, in a sail. So I think if you can make a sale, um, then, you you know, buildings wouldn't have anywhere near as much kind of stress. So uh, for me it's a no-brainer, I think, being able to sunshade a building, for example, with fi- fabric. Mm. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty obvious one. Um, and you can see all the glass towers that are not, not green, that that would be a really fantastic way of experimenting and and then if you can have um, those materials that support plant life that can have um, irrigation woven through them um, that can provide wind balance or they can also have um, sun um, solar panels or solar beads incorporated into them, suddenly you've got this very functioning skin that is doing what? Can we weave photovoltaic into textile now? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that um, interiors can um, harvest energy. Like when you think about the amount of sunlight that comes through a window Mm. and that takes the pressure of an external facade. So an interior can be an interior 
um, harvesting material. And that's a very – then you don't need glass because the glass, you know, the, the solar cells are sandwiched between two pieces of glass to protect them. Suddenly you've got film. I mean, and film can just go on the walls, stick a couple of electrodes. Wow. And yeah, so it's, a, it's you know, the interior is also really important. Like an indoor solar farm. Correct. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm learning so much, so many new things in this conversation. Here you go. <laughs> what, one last insider M Pavilion question for yes. you on the topic of longevity. Mm. When they design these pavilions, do we, do we have a lifespan that they're designed to? Um, I think most things are around 10 years. Okay. So the fabric itself, you know, has like a 10-year warranty. Uh, whether or not anything will happen to it, I don't know. And then... That's just a standard building. But they're designed to that. They're not designed for six months. They're designed just because the building code doesn't have a, you know, six-month kind of situation. Yeah, for for a decade. Yeah. Well, that's great because the students on campus get to keep enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll ask my last question. Okay. And, and that's what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope? I think... Um, I, when I see generosity of spirit and I see people under, trying to understand other people's perspectives and um, kind of taking on board ideas that they're not familiar with and really just being generous, I think generosity is, is the key. It might be what gets us through yeah. all the complex solutions we'll have to find as yeah, well. absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Leanne. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. G'day, this is Al Carlson and I'm kicking on with you on Radio Carrum. Keep it locked.